listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall. I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Jim Woodcock, Kieran Roberts, Paul Maxwell and Andrew Kemster to discuss getting the basics of cyber rights. Before we delve into the topic, uh, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Um, Jim, do you want to kick us off with a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, buddy. Um, I started work in IT over 30 years ago, believe it or not, back in the day when computers were roughly the size of a small house. Um, I spent most of my career working in financial services. I worked in investment and retail banking, asset management, and both commercial and general insurance. Uh, and across that time, I've worked in operations, architecture, delivery, and over the past 15 years or so, I've had an increased focus on uh, on security. Um, I'm an ex-CISO uh, for a Lloyd's uh, of London insurer, and I'm now CISO and Head of Security Consulting for Phoenix. Thanks, Jim. And Kieran, can I move to you? Sure. Uh, yeah, my name's Kieran Roberts. I'm a director at Fortify Cyber, primarily in charge of pen testing. Uh, I've been in pen testing and kind of offensive security for the last 10 years. Kieran, um, Paul? Yeah, hi everybody, and uh, you know, thanks for thanks for asking us on here. Uh, I've been in cybersecurity or security or whatever you want to call it uh, since uh, about thirty years as well. Started in the military. Uh, I've uh, worked on most things uh, in within HM government. I've been everything from working in forensics through to up heading up operational security teams to being lead security architects. Uh, I'm actually a NCSE head uh, security consultant. Uh, under the Assured Cybersecurity Consultancy Scheme, and I'm also Director of Stratia Cyber, uh, which I founded 11 years ago with uh, with some of my business partners. Thank you. Cool. Uh, finally, Andrew. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm Andrew Kempster. I'm the uh, Global Head of Critical Security Incident Management at DXE Technology, which is uh, an IT services and, and consulting company. Uh, my background is primarily uh, digital forensics and, and incident response, starting in the field in 2005 for law enforcement and then gradually working up and out into the private sector uh, before joining HP uh, back in 2015 and, and moving into the hardcore security, I guess. So that's me. OK, so now we're introduced and um, we'll move on to the topic of focus. Um, so you've all got questions or a statement on, on the, getting the basics of cyber right. As usual, I'll walk around the room and ask each of you to pose your questions and the reason behind it. Um, so each of you will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So um, we'll get started with Paul. Paul, do you want to pose your questions to the guys at the table? You're on mute, Paul. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's, uh, that's uh, been in the business so long, I've, I've seen it sort of evolve. Uh, and I was just wondering what the uh, the panel would think if, uh, with the cost of attack decreasing and how this has changed the basics of cybersecurity over the years. Oh, you, I think it, it, it depends, right? Because it depends in a lot of ways, like what, what kind of adversary we're talking about, because often a lot of organizations who do get compromised, they're not necessarily specifically targeted. They are low hanging fruit and that's the reason they've been attacked in, in, or, or suffered a breach in some kind. So I think that in general, yeah, definitely I, I agree that, that the cost of an attack is decreasing, but I think that alongside it, like there have always been quick and easy attack vectors out there that people fall victim to. And, you know, cybercrime is 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 a profitable business. So yeah, as as security is getting better, I think yes, the the cost of attack is decreasing, but it'd be good to see some statistics, but I would I would expect to see some kind of a crossover where yeah the cost of attack is decreasing but more or less in line with 
other people's kind of security that's increasing and we still have low-hanging fruit around that that unfortunately do get do get compromised so yeah I, like i said it would be good to see some numbers around it i don't know if anyone if there's anyone seen any studies on that uh yeah i mean well one of the reasons i asked the questions boston consulting group uh did something on it recently uh and the actual the crossover between the the cost of attack and the uh, the required technological advances was was around 2010. So uh, and the, the the cost of attacks dropped down so much more, whereas the cost of defence is, is increased dramatically. And uh, it's certainly kind of my experience in working across a, sort of multiple sectors, etc. I think it also comes down to that, you know, the topic of today is getting the basics right. And so, yeah, security defences have become very expensive. There's lots of fancy shiny boxes out there that. You can pay a subscription to or whatever, which can can be can get really expensive really quickly. But the fundamentals needn't be that expensive, really. I don't think in, in a lot of cases. And like I said, like if you're low hanging fruit, probably those fancy tools and and things out there may not even help you anyway. Um, yeah. If you don't have if you don't have the basics right. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Your thoughts, Andrew? Yeah, so I mean, Kieran, what you mentioned about low hanging fruit, uh, a lot of my time is still spent in incident response. So very much at the coal face working with the teams and, and we do consistently see that low hanging fruit, you know, easy peasy target base that, that keeps getting hit. So that's it's a really good point. But, you know, thinking about the, the decreasing cost, you know, if we look at the explosion of the Internet and social media, and I'm thinking particularly about YouTube, you know, uh, as the, the press coverage, the, the mainstream media coverage of of cyber grows and grows and we see every day in the news this company is hit and that company is hit the interest grows in it and with that the information that's available online you know you get your cve database you get you know get, github is there with your, your proof of concept code and then your instructions come on youtube on how to do it and you know metasploit is there and and suddenly it goes from being quite a niche skill to pretty much anybody can do it and so suddenly it goes from we have these small areas of the enterprise that we need to focus on to suddenly you know vpns right how do we protect those you know we've got you know uh, web servers how do we protect those and suddenly anybody can hit anything and the attack surface grows and grows and grows and and you know we can have all those blinky boxes but unless uh, you have you know, that visibility of your environment, that understanding of all those little edge pieces that have grown organically over time. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's something that's becoming more and more difficult to control as that cost of attack comes down and, and people are just becoming far more comfortable with using these tools to basically, you know, not necessarily cause damage for money, just for experience and street cred, I guess. Your thoughts, Tim? Yeah, so, so I'm going to take it as given, Paul, that um, the costs are decreasing. I know you can go on the dark web and you can buy you know, privileged access um, to, yeah. you know, to, to to systems for you know a couple of dollars. Um, so I think I think that that is a given. Um, but I think what what it's meant is that, that the baseline, the basics, it, it's kind of moved up. I mean, you, you don't have to go too far back into the past when the basics was you know, understanding your assets, understand your crown jewels, make sure you've got good vulnerability management capability in place, and and tried and tested. Um, detect and respond capability, um, and with that you were cut. You were, yeah, you were kind of comfortable, but now um, 
you know, in my experience, things such as your know, network segmentation, EDR, network-based IPS, yeah. actually having really detailed uh, and tested playbooks for common attack types, they're pretty mandatory nowadays, uh, certainly for la large organisations. Um, now, some, some of those um, are quite easy to implement, but not easy to run well. Uh, so if you look at um, uh, NIPS, for example, um, you know, tuning the noise out of a network uh, IPS solution takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. A retrofitting network segmentation, you know, the cost of change, it's, it's, it's a big, it's a big undertaking. Um, so I, I think the other thing I would reflect on is that um, we're seeing more of the business now as part of that minimum baseline. So, yeah, we, we talked about, um, you know, understanding the crown jewels, but actually documenting the information asset registers, which, you know, that info, those information assets are business assets at the end of the day. So the business company, you know, they, they take part there, participating in tabletop exercises, um, having templated comms for common attack types, um, so you don't you know, have to worry about these things when, when you when you are attacked. Um, and also, the mind, there's a mindset shift as well. I think um, a that it's not an if these days; it's when you get attacked by cyber, and that again is a is a, is a kind of business mindset shift. Um, but also, um, yeah, the other thing I've seen is that the the business now accept in a lot of organisations we work with certainly that this uh, this whole kind of cyber risk thing it's no longer an IT problem you know they view it solely as a business problem uh, and I think that's 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 quite a, that's quite a positive change have you like to add Paul uh, no I think uh, I mean I think that's uh, what everybody said is, is, is perfectly correct uh, I think probably one of the things that probably needs to understand it, it, the basics are probably slightly different for everybody depending on your risk profile you know, uh, what's your sort of lowest level of hygiene that you're 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 willing to cyber hygiene you're willing to implement to protect said crown jewels, etc. Uh, because uh, we've got various frameworks, NIST, Cyber Essentials Plus, you, you know, the ten steps to cyber, and they all they all uh, they all mean different things to different people, you know. And, and I think that's probably one of the the things about uh, understanding what the basics actually mean. And, and for me, it is you know, understanding what you need to protect uh, and making sure that the confidentiality, integrity, availability of uh, that is sorted and you, you make sure you reduce any reputational damage. Okay, uh, well, Andrew, we'll come to you next. Do you want to pose your question? Yeah, great. Um, so my question essentially is, um, whether as a consultant or, you know, someone full-time employed uh, in-house, in how do you pitch to senior management or the board that they need to invest in a cybersecurity program? Question. Paul, come to you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so for for me, that the, the first thing it has to be clear and concise in a language they understand. Uh, we we live in a, a jargon-heavy environment. Uh, cybersecurity. It's 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 grown its own its own legs and its own its own language. Uh, and you know, I'd be. I, my advice would be, you know, to make the board member or the board understand that it's actually their responsibility, you know, by law for 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 this this information or, or uh, the assets that they have. Uh, it should be integrated as part of just their, their standard business as usual risk processes. Yeah, no, it's no different to financial risk or IT risk or HR risk, delivery risk, etc. It should be brought into that whole sort of governance, risk, and compliance piece. The make the 
the board the board understand the benefits uh, around that uh, to other areas of the business more agility to to potentially deliver services uh, more resilience uh, and uh, obviously bring in some metrics into that as well that you know 40 i think it's 40 odd percent of businesses were attacked you know, had a cyber breach or a cyber attack last year and uh, making sure that uh, they understand that the cost of the remedy can sometimes be considerably higher than the actual the cost of uh, implementing uh, just little little changes can make such a massive difference you know and, and do that so that's what i would do Jim, good to you. Yeah, um, I like some of the things that Paul said. Um, certainly, you know, it's important to be objective. Um, it's it's very easy to uh, be tentative to be a bit kind of sensationalistic, uh, use lots of hyperbole, but you know, just keep it very objective. Um, yeah, as Paul said, don't go technical. Um, it, it's important you communicate with the board. Um, you, you'll lose the audience straight away if you go technical. Um, there will be somebody on the board that is held accountable um, about for cybersecurity. Um, so yeah, identify that person in advance and make an ally uh, of, of that person. You, you're going to need them to agree with everything you, everything you say. Um, again, to, to Paul's point, um, perform some kind of um, cybersecurity framework assessment, um, you know, maturity assessment, whatever. Ideally independent, um, so you, you know, you're not accused then of fudging the numbers. Uh, if you can get a, a, a peer comparison, that always helps. Um, people certainly don't like to be any worse um, than, than their competitors. Um, and then, yeah, when you kind of understand where you've got your gaps, be really transparent about about what they are. Um, you know, some of them may not reflect well on you if you're, you know, if you're responsible operationally, um, but they are, they are, right? You you just got to just got to acknowledge them, um, and then be clear about um, what the pre prevalent threats are to the business. Um, so, what are the motivators um, for a um, yeah for for a cyber attack? You know, what, what are they trying to attack the business? Once you've done that, you you then kind of got to the how. Yeah, they're going to attack your gaps, the who and the why for a cyber attack. Um, and then you can then you start to position um, you know, the investment in the context of reducing business risk. You know, to Paul's point, I think, um, you know, in line with risk appetite. Um, but I, I also think it's really important that um, as those discussions conclude, you do have a very risk based discussion. So you talk you talk in the context of risk and risk, risk assessment. Um, and then you you conclude the discussion by basically making it clear that if the business chooses not to address those risks, they are accepting them. You know, there's no there's no there's no yeah. there's no middle ground. Uh, if you don't if you don't invest to accept um, to 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 clear the risk, then you accept it. Um, and again, one thing I've, I've I've encountered is boards will say, well, you've, you've asked for hundred pounds, um, go off and do what you can for seventy five. Um, again, you need to be really clear. Go back to the board and say, right, your seventy five pound gets you these things. To address these risks, it, the 25 gap means you still you still carry these risks, so you need to accept them. I think it's, it's, it's quite it's quite important, but to not allow the, the board to really kind of fudge the numbers and, and play with things. Thanks, Jim. When it comes to you, Kieran. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So one of the things that Jim mentioned earlier is that cybersecurity is, is a business problem rather than like an IT problem, and I think this is kind of relevant here, right? That it's making the board and everyone in the organisation understand that this isn't just an IT problem, this isn't just a cyber problem. This this affects everybody. Um, I think one of the other things that, again, building on something that Paul mentioned a little bit earlier around kind of like the, the cure can often be more expensive than the, or the remedy can be more expensive. We're now starting to see some significant fines um, when people do get compromised. Um, and again, that's that shouldn't be the reason that people actually pay attention to security. But now that we are seeing some, you know, that the regulators actually have some teeth, like I think that it is worth it's worth kind of bringing that into the discussion. I think like BA got fined something like 20 million pounds when they were compromised in 2018. I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but it was it was significant. And you know the GDPR fines are 
you know, I think it's like 20 million euros or 4% of worldwide turnover. Like that, I think, is enough to make, hopefully, make people sit up and take notice and realize that there is, you know, whether it's a, a carrot or a, or a stick, as long as people are trending in the right direction, I think that's a good thing. So, yeah, I think that, that there's definitely a good business case for it. Um, in my opinion, it should be a proactive decision. But even if it isn't, you know, hopefully that kind of uh, threat of financial burden, I guess, is, is still getting people moving in the right direction. Thanks, Graham. Anything to add, Andrew? Yeah, th th those are all really great. Um, I mean, what I what I tend to see a lot as a consultant is is I have those discussions kind of coming towards the end of an incident when we've identified those those gaps and those risks and and we go to the the board or the the, the C-suite and we say here is where you need to invest and and normally what we say is when they kind of push back on costs and they do the whole um and r and talk risk register and this and that we say well you have been burned now now is the best time to take this to whomever holds the purse strings and says this has just cost us x to get us back to where we were yesterday this is how much it will cost to prevent that happening again or at least bring that risk down um so yeah, no, th those are really good responses. Thank you. Fantastic. Okay, Jim, we'll, uh, we'll come to you next. Um, yeah. So, to my to my question is is have you encountered a situation where a security project uh, being delivered has been materially impacted by assuming the basics were in place? Um, you probably all have. Um, and I'd be interested to to kind of get a sense as to you know in, in the example you 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 want to use how the blame storming played out because there's always finger pointing that tends to happen after that. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Paul, talk with you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, been around a long time. So, you know, there's there's been a few of these, but the one that's probably most uh, most relevant to me was I was engaged uh, to to do some assurance work uh, to, to to build a new a new network for a, a government agency, and the whole idea was that this was going to be the new network, but it would connect to the old network while they did the transformation aspect of it and moved it across. Uh, we did a quick sort of audit, you know, to uh, on the old network, and we realised that it hadn't been patched for nearly two years. Uh, they'd had a pen test; nothing had been done on it. Every person uh, with admin rights had full admin rights on everything. The users had full admin rights on their lap, their workstations, etc. You know, so so that obviously that, that kind of set the context to it. Uh, and the reason that it had been like that was because I went to the risk register to identify the risk and have a look and see what it was. And it was just a pure fabrication. Uh, and it had been made that way because senior management didn't want to spend money, which meant that the CTO couldn't request any cash, etc, etc. So the way it ended up playing out was that uh, I redid the risk register uh, to, and <laughs> What I said was to, to the person that engaged me is, you know, if I get your risk register sorted, you've got the excuse for investment uh, because otherwise your, your, your program's just going to die on its, its feet. Uh, and that's what ended up happening. But it was it was quite a quite an interesting time for three to six months. There was a lot of finger pointing. It's my responsibility. It's not yours. And, and it was pushed around because they didn't really have a dedicated sort of uh, person responsible for security. Uh, so, so, yeah, it was it was interesting. Andrew? Yeah, so I mean recently I was I was involved in an investigation uh where a, a client was breached and they they kept going on 
very early doors in the investigation about how you know we, we have this security baseline we've been through this exercise we've ticked all these boxes we you know we we made sure that we've got MFA in place. We have offline backups. We have this, we have that. Patching is good and da 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 da. And as we were going through the investigation, it was like, well, your VPN is single factor. You're, you know, you're running 2003 server. Your backups are online. They are torched. Um, so can I please see this security baseline document? And they, and they sent me this thing and it was full of questions and it had, you know, a couple of pages where it was just yes, 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 yes. So I, I went back, I said, right, okay, can I see the actual evidence that backs up these responses? Yes. In comes the Excel spreadsheet and it's all just yes, 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 followed by empty columns. And, and, and I remember taking a snapshot and putting a big red question mark and sending it back to the client and saying, what should be in here? And the person who should have undertaken this locally within the client's business had long departed. And so nobody could really be held accountable, but they were running around trying to hold somebody responsible for not kind of shoulder surfing this person and ensuring that what he had been doing was was good. It would it would meet the grade. So essentially where they believed that they were in this comfy, safe zone with all these protections and they'd met all these uh, security baselines, they were completely adrift and, and you know, it was uh, it was a huge wake up call for them. Huge, huge wake up call. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the best example I have for this is, is slightly different, but so there was a, a customer of ours, they um, they had outsourced all their, all their IT, right, which is not uncommon. Uh, they still had one IT manager internally, but everything else was outsourced to a third party. And as part of that, they were told that their environment would be pen tested annually, which is pretty common. Um, but, you know, the third party were handling all that stuff. Now, I don't know what happened, but the, our customer had came to us and said, we have some reason to believe that things aren't as squeaky clean as, as, as we're being told. Now, I don't know what happened prior, but they had obviously something had happened and they reached out to us and said that we want some independent third party verification of what this organization is saying. So we came along, we did we did a pen test and actually a lot of the you know, quote unquote basics were, were okay. You know, like a basic vulnerability scan would come back with very little problems. Like everything was patched, um, everything was, you know, in relatively good health. However, there were fundamental flaws in the way that certain things were being done. So during a pen test, obviously, we it's a lot more kind of manual. We'll start with the vulnerability scan, but then we're going to go put a, a layer deeper and start looking at what things are and how things fit together. And we came across a number of admin scripts. So they were just a bunch of PowerShell scripts. Um, with files that were encrypted. And when we started going through the PowerShell scripts, we realized that they were pulling in encrypted files that contained domain credentials and decrypting them and then just running as admin. Now, you know, a scanner or something like that is never going to find anything like that because it just doesn't understand the context. Whereas, you know, a meat sack and chair can read through the thing and understand what's happening. Um, and so, yeah, that was a situation where the, that organization had been given information that everything's a-okay and uh, yeah they, they they that was not the case and um, however you know like from a from a basic scan that, that certainly didn't show up so i wasn't privy to exactly what happened after that but i suspect there were some uncomfortable conversations with that provider thank you and the final jim yeah i mean it's, it's it sounds like we've all had kind of similar kind of experiences i think i think it's one um that, that really sticks in my mind um it was a company we were working with 
uh, and they were looking to implement, um, in fact, they did implement um, a piece of software that does kind of automated um, IT security assurance uh, reporting. And what it does, is it pulls in uh, data from things like Active Directory, uh, and your antivirus tool set, DNS, asset management tool, impact management tool, et cetera, et cetera, and triangulates it all. Um, and in, in an ideal world, you would actually see yeah, a single asset, tick, 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 every, everything kind of lines up. However, all the, all the tools worked okay independently, but they all refer to the assets using either an IP address or just a host name or a fully qualified domain name. And then when the triangulation tool then tried to join these things together, they missed. Um, uh, it, it was really also not helped by the fact that there was no housekeeping done in Active Directory. Um, so there were loads and loads of zombie objects in there. Um, and then when the, when the first round this tool, uh, it showed that over 50% of the estate had no antivirus installed on it. Now clearly that wasn't the case. Uh, yeah, it, was, it was a false positive. Um, but, um, and, and the reason I asked the question about uh, blame storming is that report found its way into the wrong person's mailbox. And within that organization, you can imagine all hell broke loose. <laughs> um, but what, what was quite interesting, yeah, that tool itself, really useful tool. Um, it took about two to three months to implement um, and then about two to three years to remediate. <laughs> Good stuff. Fantastic. Okay, Kieran, we'll uh, we'll come to you next. Sure. So yeah, you know, on the on the subject of kind of uh, getting the basics right. So my question is, why is patching still so difficult? Right. Like we patching is largely a solved problem. Like people have like a, a WSUS or a WSUS server set up, and that does an amazing job. The problem is we still have cracks. Like when we perform your pen testing, we often find assets that are just forgotten about or you know things that, that, that don't fall, fall under an organization's quote-unquote standard patching policy um often things like a web server right again like anytime that an organization is dealing with third parties we find that things are not being patched so i guess my, my question is what can we do about it other than updating patching policies which doesn't seem like people are doing so andrew come to you yeah I, so Again, in my position, I deal with lots of different clients across plenty of, of verticals, and we still see the same thing, you know, either end of life operating systems in use or systems that have not been patched for a long time, you know, if, if ever. Um, but I think there's a lot to take into consideration when it comes to why something has not been patched. And I've had this conversation a number of times, and it always reminds me of the the night that WannaCry broke. And and I was on a on a call with a, a colleague and a friend, and he suddenly said, "Oh my God, I I because he he was doing stuff with the NHS. I have to go. Something's kicking off." And and off he went. And suddenly I had a phone call from my boss, and you know we were all kind of red alert and ready to go. But then what I saw on social media was. Um, uh, one of these infosec influencers, which is a term that makes me want to vomit, um, basically saying <laughs> patch your shit essentially, and and getting really irate at the NHS about the fact that they were they were so heavily impacted by something that had been patched something like three months ago. But he wasn't taking into consideration that the NHS is a publicly funded body; they don't have a lot of money, they do operate technology which is very old, very um sensitive to change you know these patches have to go through a whole acceptance testing phase that takes time they have you know skill levels within the nhs and, and any publicly funded body are limited because the, the, they can't afford the big 
fees that the, the private consultants, you know, that, that, that they can take. So I don't think it's as simple as saying it's not working. I think that there's so many different angles towards this thing. But of course, there are those where it's just pure neglect. And I see those all the time. I see them currently on a case I'm working. Um, and I don't think patching is ever something that's going to be 100% fixed. I think it will improve over time. It, we've certainly seen it improve you know, over the last 10 years without a shadow of a doubt. But, you know, as companies become more fragmented, either through remote working, you know, lots of us are remote working as financial pressures mean the companies are dissolved, com uh, business units are, are cut loose. You have levers who have lots of tribal knowledge about the business and what sits where and how it runs. And please don't touch this box because once it falls over, I don't think it'll wake up again. Um, and, and we lose that knowledge through, through you know, departures from the business. And then it comes back to asset management. And I don't know, we, I think this is, it's, it's a great topic to talk about. I think we could talk about this for, for hours and hours. I don't think there's a silver bullet here. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to resonate with Andrew said, you know, and taking up the, the asset management, I think that is key to patching. If you don't know what you've got, you can't patch it. It's that simple. And there's so many organisations out there that just don't get asset management. Uh, there's so many sort of uh, shadow, uh, shadowy IT type items on people's networks and it's not identified. But you know, patching's time consuming. It's never ending. It's a it's a drudge. It's a drag. It it kind of goes against what people in IT want to do. You know, it's meant to be interesting and exciting. And 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 patching, you know, setting up patching and doing testing consistently. It get it gets hard work for people as well. Uh, and it's a, it's a constant. Uh, it's a, it's painting the fourth road bridge, isn't it? It'll never end. And I think that's part of the problem. Uh, the software gets more complex and uh, the rush software out the door before ensuring it's uh, it's been properly code reviewed and, and it's got defects in it. Uh, it's only going to ensure that there's that there's more patching in the future. Uh, it's also expensive, as Andrew said, if you test properly and, and, and move things through. Uh, there's operational experiences as well. You know, uh, if, if something gets taken down to patch, uh, commercial businesses can be losing money when that's happening as well. So you know, and that that's fundamental to the, to their sort of bottom line, and that's what I've noticed working you know in certain places is that well we we can't we can't take that down. We don't have a we don't have the resilience to to run another one up so that we can continue continue selling. So so there's all those, but it, it's a it's going to be a never ending problem. As I say, it's got better over the years, uh, but I can't see it being ever perfect. Jim? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I'll break it down into two questions and I think you know, kind of broadly we've actually answered both of them already. Um, so it's how to patch and what to patch. Yeah. I think they're, they're the two questions, right? Um, so, so how to patch is probably the slightly easier one to solve. Um, I mean, if, if, I'm sure everyone on this call has, has been involved in um, patching exercises where there have been unintended consequences and system outages and, and stuff like that. And that does make people rather nervous. And sometimes that generates some bad behaviour, so people actually try and defer and defer patching, um, which ultimately is self-defeating because you build a bit of a bit of a kind of snowplow effect of, of patches that rather than being a relatively small delta change on the server is quite significant. Um, so, you know, it, the, I think the key to how to patch is, is little and often. Um, and, and certainly when I've worked in organisations that have done this well, it's been kind of like on a, on a monthly basis. 
Um, I think that um, having a zero day policy is really important. I think you know, we're getting more and more zero day um, vulnerabilities coming out that need patching. And, you know, the, the direction of travel is that we will get more and more. They'll become more and more frequent. So actually having a, having a robust zero day policy is quite important. But I think you know, come back to the point that everyone has made. It's the what to patch that is the absolute killer. Um, that is that is uh, the, the most challenging. I think, um, you know, one thing has been a bit, a bit of a theme through all of the questions and answers on, on this on this podcast is it's the asset management thing. It is really hard. Um, and that's probably the, the most important basic to get right. Because, um, yeah, I think Paul um, put it quite uh, succinctly. If you don't know about it, you're not going to be able to patch it. Yeah. yeah. Andrew? Yeah, sorry. I, I raised my hand there because, you know, we keep talking about asset management and, and CMDBs, and, and it's absolutely right. But I, I've recently, you know, had a conversation with someone who swore blind that we didn't need a CMDB. And when I say we, I mean just generally, you know, industry, <laughs> enterprise, you know, it started when I said, you know, how can you protect what you can't see? And, you know, the response was pretty much you just learn to live in that mindset. And and I, I challenged it and didn't really get a, a response. But what I found was that 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 response from this person was then backed up by a bunch of other people saying, well, we don't need CNDB. And, and I, I just sat there for ages scratching my head and 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 kind of sitting in my own little echo chamber starting to doubt everything that I'd ever <laughs> been taught and thought about and gone right I must be wrong then because this guy you know he was he's a really well respected guy and, and and there were people backing him up and then I went and spoke to a couple of people in work and they said seriously what's wrong with him honestly how, how can you literally defend something you can't see and and so yeah we see time and time again, and I don't want to sort of monopolize the conversation, but we see time and time again when we go to clients is the fact that the CMDB is something that has been neglected for a long time because it takes time. It takes investment. It takes feeding and watering, um, and, and therefore it gets pushed to one side somewhat uh, until it's needed. And then, you know, when we say, well, we, we you know, our systems, have, we've picked something up in this satellite office what is it and, and everyone just kind of i don't know and and so we got to send some poor person out on site to go look at it but yeah it's uh yeah sorry i, I didn't mean to to steal the conversation but you know i i wanted to get that out there about cndb yeah thanks andrew jim so i should come off mute um yeah i just just to really pick up on, on what one point it's a bit a bit of a pedantry uh point but it is something I do, I do have this conversation a number of times with people is that um, actually to be successful from a security perspective is more the inventory that you need rather than CMDB. The CMDB has a lot of stuff and guff in there yeah. that you that you possibly or probably don't need. Um, and, and so I tend to think in terms of, you know, because I'm a security person and I'm quite parochial, um, minimum viable inventory is what I need. Uh, all the other guff that you that you do need to have in a CMDB for you know the ITIL function to 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 work yeah. correctly, then then fine. But just give me that minimum viable inventory because without that, then you, you're absolutely high and dry. Okay. Anything like to add, Karen? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that we, we've already kind of discussed most of most of the points. I definitely agree with. Like, I think that yeah, the biggest thing is like trying to get a better understanding of your blind spots, whether that is a machine that's been forgotten off the asset list or some third party software that. The marketing team, for example, are using that nobody knows about, which has been unpatched for the last five years or whatever. Right. It's just getting better understanding of what do what do we have and how could that impact us? Um, something else I wanted to pick up on was uh, one of the things An Andrew mentioned around um, particularly kind of 
public sector, but it can be any organization really, uh, having unpatched stuff that's there for a quote unquote good reason, or, or just because you can't get rid of it. Um, we did some pen testing um, a while ago for an organization who was publicly funded. They had this one special machine. I won't say what it is because it would terrify people, but it was millions of pounds and it was running completely end of life stuff. It was horrible and gross and needed to be turned off. They came back to us and said, look, we can't turn this off because this machine does this thing. And we were like, ah, OK, that sounds important. So effectively, we, you know, we, we they can't patch it. The, there is no patches. There's no way of fixing it. So what we ended up actually helping them do was effectively VLANing it, right? We we put it in its own network segment so it can be quietly vulnerable for the rest of its days, which is not an ideal solution, but sometimes security hasn't got an ideal solution. Yeah. So I think that's that's an important point to to, to bring up as well. Thanks very much. Anyone, uh, any further points to add on that one? stuff okay well, i've got there there but put the final question out there for you guys um just just i mean obviously i speak to a lot of clients who are um I suppose looking to grow out their functions and i suppose if they're getting the basics right at the beginning and uh, obviously what, what sort of advice would you give a business when they're looking to bring a function in-house so they're looking to develop their own security function where would you where, where, where would you suggest they start I'll come to you first jim yes yeah, so, so i i kind of come at this one from the assumption that there is something already that's been done for them by a third party um, so if, if, it's, if it's already outsourced to a third party, um, look at your contract, um, look for exit assistance provisions. Um, they are, they should always be there, um, but very often they're just left as a placeholder, you know, contract negotiation time. People say, oh yeah, we'll fill those in at some later point. Uh, get on them and, and start to get those, get those filled out. Um, make sure you get a good uh, view uh, on the current baseline of security. Um, look at completed documentation. Uh, completes the design documents in particular, standard operating procedures, look at licenses, uh, intellectual property rights, um, understand whether you've got novation rights and licenses as well, um, because you may end up having to re-procure re a whole bunch of stuff, which is a kind of unexpected cost. Um, be clear about success criteria, so make sure that's understood by the project team. Uh, what are the drivers for doing what you're doing? Um, what does good look like and how are you going to measure it? Um, that's, pr that's pretty key. Um, and I think, you know, when you're doing this kind of thing, it's also very tempting to try and bull the ocean. So, you know, you take the view, well, well, you know, we could do everything better, so we're going to do, we are going to do everything better. Um, that that really is a recipe for failure. Um, so be be quite open and honest about what is good enough um, and what actually isn't good enough, and then focus on the stuff that isn't good enough. Uh, and then make sure that that's communicated to the team regularly. Um, you know, one thing I've seen in, in all sorts of projects, um, in particular desktop projects, bizarrely, is that project teams tend to go very native and they, they, they somewhat lose sight of the, the objective of the project um, and they just go kind of kind of gung-ho and deliver what they think needs to be delivered rather than uh, the outcomes that the project is trying to deliver. I think the final bit of advice I'll give is um, get your security TOM, your target operating model, get that defined early and get your recruiting of the key roles done early as well. Um, so get the folk that are going to be uh, in those key roles, get them on board, get them as part of that transition project team. Um, yeah, get get them, yeah, get get them yeah, to feel the heat of accountability because at the end of the day, they will be the ones that will be running this uh, when that um, when that kind of in-house work is um, it, it is complete. And one of the things that again you see in all sorts of projects is that uh, transition teams very often get built from contractors, and those contractors gain a huge amount of uh, knowledge, skills, and institutional knowledge. Um, and then at the end of the project, you just don't wave goodbye to them and you have all that knowledge and skills just walk out the door. Um, so at least make sure you've got some of that is retained into the organisation. 
Jim, Kevin. Uh, yeah, I think like, the flavor flavor of the of the of the day, I guess, is has been asset management. Right, make sure that you understand exactly what you have. Like, if you're bringing things in house, make sure that you understand what you have, and also who's responsible for it. Um, I would say the one of the other big things is to write things down. Um, again, to Jim's point, that if there are staff who leave, whether they're permanent staff or contractors. I've seen many cases where organizations are stuck because a key staff member has left and took all of the knowledge that they had with them. And now no one knows, not only do they not know how anything works, but not they also don't know who's responsible for what or or, or kind of, yeah, everything just kind of ground, grinds to a halt. Um, so yeah, understand kind of what, what you have when you're bringing it in-house and understand who's responsible for what um, and make sure that there are processes. Processes can be dull, but they're also super important. Um, also means if people aren't following processes, you have a document to go back to and say, look, this is written down. You should be doing this or that person should be doing that. And it's just black and white for everyone to see. Thanks, Jim. And Paul? Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of echo what, what, what Jim and Kieran have just said is, you know, is understand uh, what you're actually bringing back in-house. There might be certain functions that it's not uh, financially viable uh, to bring in-house if you are using it. Uh, an external sock, you know, that ouch, depending on the size of the company, you know, uh, your if, uh, audit teams, etc. Uh, and just uh, obviously make sure that uh, if you if you are transiting from a, a, a provider already, that there's a, a suitable sort of handover uh, put in place, which uh, identifies exactly where you are on, on day one when you've you started to build your team so that you know uh, what your legacy uh, security debt is effectively uh, when you move on. Thanks, Paul. And finally, Andrew? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm everyone, I, I completely agree with what's been said. Um, you know, my thoughts are look at what you are currently receiving, again, assuming that, you know, a third party service is being consumed, but look at what that contracted minimum uh, provision is. Can you match that? Um, you know, and and lower your costs, which I assume would be your purpose for bringing it in house. But also consider things like, you know, are there any regulatory requirements that you you need to meet? Are you are you suitably skilled for that? Knowledgeable, you know, security staff are uh, expensive. Um, technology is expensive. Um, security is is normally seen as a bit of a black hole when it comes to investments. There's there's no real tangible return on investment. Uh, we're not here to make money, we're here to protect you. Um, and so whoever is making those decisions at the top about bringing that security function in house, just be prepared for, you know, uh, not thinking this is going to, to solve all your money issues, um, because there's a lot of stuff that can come with with bringing any kind of security function uh, within your four walls. Stuff, thank you, Andrew. Okay, um, I think we uh, can leave it there. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank Jim, Andrew, Kieran and Paul for providing their insights on the topic. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to get involved in one of our up and coming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at robert.wall.evolutionjobs.co.uk and we'll see you next time. Thank you.